Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Everyone, welcome to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. Today we're here with Dr. Ashwak Hauter, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at UC Santa Cruz. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're discussing her article, Fright and the Fraying of Community, Medicine, Borders, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. Uh, before we get started into questions, though, tell our listeners a bit about yourself, how you got into anthropology, and how you started studying uh, this particular topic. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, it's it's rather a long story that I'll try to kind of succinctly um, uh, uh, tell. Uh, basically, um, it kind of started with my undergrad thesis. I was really interested in, um, I was actually originally like a development studies major. Um, and uh, I happened to kind of uh, come at this crossroads of what did I want to do? And a lot of it was in relation to studying development in Yemen, because we've had like many, many like summer trips um, to visit family. And so I would notice a lot of hospitals named after foreign countries. It would be like the modern German hospital, um, the like Saudi hospital or, and what, um, and so forth. And so then I think it was my junior year in the summer. I, I went and I wanted to volunteer because my brother had become a doctor and I was like, should I become a doctor? I was, is one of those moments where like, what can I do? Um, uh, I had this outlook of um, where are my skill sets best um, utilized. And so in this emergency room, um, there was this poster that said the, uh, the wisdom is Yemeni and the expertise is German. Um, and it's a riff off a prophetic saying that like, um, uh, that the religion is Yemeni and the faith is Yemeni by the prophet. And so there, and then I learned from different, um, interlocutors, um, of mine that this was like a poster used in like a lot of schools, a lot of hospitals to say like there's a wisdom of Yemeni and then our expertise comes from like abroad. So my senior thesis, I ended up taking more anthropology classes. Um, to kind of understand this idea of the importation of expertise. Um, and it kind of piloted um, my uh, PhD uh, research, which uh, initially was about going to Yemen, thinking about the medical tradition. Uh, do both doctors and patients see it as something indigenous to the Islamic tradition, uh, or do they see it as an exportation um, of like the Western, like a, of a, like a Western practice. Um, and then initially because of preliminary field work, I knew it was much more nuanced because of the history of Arabic medicine, um, inheriting and transforming Greek medicine. And then of course, uh, that kind of, um, like, uh, Ibn Sina's canon in particular kind of, uh, gives life to what happens with medicine later on. Uh, and so, but then the conflict happened in Yemen during my third year of graduate school. And so I had to start going elsewhere. And so I went to Jordan, I went to Saudi Arabia, and it was very um, uh, serendipitous that a lot of, um, given like sort of like my dispossession as a scholar, um, a lot of refugees and migrants were kind of drawn 
um, to speak to me, to ask me about what am I doing as this like Yemeni American in this particular place and why am I doing the kind of research that I'm doing. Um, and so uh, my uh, dissertation kind of culminated in like my initial questions about um, uh, medical ethical practice and expertise, but also then there's this component of this like uh, region upheaval that was happening um, also and kind of informing shifts in reform in medical practice. So your research discusses a lot, uh, well, basically the article discusses the maps that how it relates to a person's character and spirit. For those who are not familiar with this term, how would you say that nafs is similar and different to the Christian concept of a soul? Okay. Um, so <laughs> this is a very complicated question. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think it has two parts. Um, first, uh, I would have to say, um, I would have to first like talk about methodology within anthropology itself. Uh, so it's, not so much that uh, we do ethnography and we talk to interlocutors and we pick up a concept and we trace it like linearly historically that, oh, yeah, the, the nefs in this one particular text comes to kind of create this monolithic idea of this nefs in this vast tradition um, uh, that is kind of an ongoing discursive tradition that uh, transforms. Um, and so. Uh, I think ethically listening to my interlocutors, I came to encounter certain instantiations of the nest uh, that reminded me of resonances within the medical tradition, within Islamic philosophical tradition, where, within jurisprudence, and even like pop psychology. <laughs> so, I mean, we're in like a globalized world. And so the way that people... Uh, utilize concepts to understand the connections between the immaterial and the material uh, get to be a little bit polysemous. And that's why I call the nefs in the article itself a polysemous concept, meaning it has many meanings. It's the And you kind of have to do a little bit of a, a history of the concept and, and pull from different discourses in order to uh, make sense of like how your interlocutors are theorizing it. And it was very important for me to theor kind of follow the theorization of my interlocutors themselves, then superimpose theory. So in the article, right, the nefs is mutable. It's uh, connected to the physical body. It's connected to the psyche, uh, the way that relations um, can actually impact your nefs. Uh, and so historically, uh, the reason why I draw on, like, say, for example, uh, Imam al-Ghazali and um, Ibn Sina is that even in the two particular uh, scholars, the nefs in al-Ghazali is uh, it's material, it's connected to the body, and he locates uh, the, the soul or the intellect and the heart. Whereas in Ibn Sina, there's like a material nafs and there's an immaterial nafs. So this is just to give you an example of kind of the different iterations um, within the tradition itself and how the inter my inter when my interlocutors speak, I then um, was able to go to different um, places within the archive uh, to kind of draw and, and also to kind of fill in um, uh, so, sort of like to, to reconstruct um, their theory. On the other hand, 
you have also the Christian tradition, which also has different <laughs> instantiations of the nefs. I mean, the, the soul is different in Luther and Aquinas and um, Augustine. And so to say that there is a particular idea of the soul in Christianity and a particular idea of the soul in Islam would be very reductive. Um, uh, on the other hand, I can speak to uh, some of the interesting ways the, the nest kind of uh, emerges within the within Islamic philosophy, like, for example, um, it's seen as mutable, it's tied to the imagination, it's tied to the body. And so you have, like, for example, um, in the work of Nahyan Fancy, uh, he works on Ibn Nafis, which is one of the first Muslim physicians who um, writes about uh, the pulmonary circulation. And he did that by reformulating the nafs by engaging kind of different discourses um, on on structuring the nest. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, Aristotelian, Platonic theories impacted the way that Muslim physicians and uh, Muslim philosophers dealt with um, the psychology um, of the soul. Uh, and at the same time, even within Arabic philosophy and Islamic philosophy and the, during the translation movement between the 8th and the 14th century, you didn't have just Muslim philosophers working on Arabic philosophy. It was both Christian and Jewish um, philosophers. Now, to talk about the contemporary, like our ideas of the soul. So there's different material conditions that shift how we understand you know, the mind, the soul, um, our psyche. And then, and then particularly in Europe, of course, you had this question of science and the church, whereas in Islam early on, you didn't have this, uh, it wasn't so much antagonistic, but there were certain theological commitments um, that made certain scholars uh, omit certain things from Greek philosophy and accept certain things, transform certain things. Um, but even now, even in the Muslim world now, the material conditions um, and access to the tradition itself have transformed because of just the way of colonization and pedagogy has shifted. And so you have a much more um, kind of amalgamation of being like people drawing from different discourses to understand um, the soul. And of course, this, like as you mentioned, I talk about the soul in relation to character. Um, and within the um, Islamic tradition, this question on the soul that then like impacted medicine, impacted philosophy, um, was also important not just for the proper relationship of like desire to the law, right, to the ways that um, the dispensation of God's law should be kind of um, on earth, because it's not just simply about like the afterlife or cultivating your soul for the afterlife, but it's also about how does it look like to cultivate your soul with other souls in community. And so the the, the question of like justice and truth within the community, um, these treaties of the nefs were also kind of created for that. And you see some of these resonances um, still um, having an impact on people's discourse uh, within the contem contemporary Although it's not this kind of like linear um, where people still have access to the tradition. Um, and then so the tradition comes 
in, in different kind of iterations or access to the tradition might happen through Friday sermons or um, certain kind of oral traditions of passing down ways to um, cultivate your soul and so forth. So it's a little bit of a complicated question. It's not to say that like Muslims have this tradition that had such power and impact on them. And then in Christianity, there's like something different. So you can find resonances across the traditions about um, the soul, whether the soul is like mutable, multiple, um, balanced. Um, like, for example, in the Quran, the, the soul is seen as like an ongoing cultivated entity it could either become demanding reproaching or reassured and so in these things are ongoing um states that you work towards um and on the other hand like everyone is thought to have a soul and even animals and so animals are thought to have um imagination and animality is not opposed to intellect but that it like there is a certain kind of requirement of balancing your vegetative and like your animal soul in relation to your intellect. Uh, so there's a lot of, I guess, like some of the resonances from within the Islamic tradition still kind of it like uh, find their way within contemporary discourses. But you can also find them in, you know, the West when we talk talk about dogs dreaming or the way that we we've come to think about um uh like the body or the mind just because we don't have this name soul doesn't mean we we can't see resonances across um different like languages that we give to something that we used to talk about as a soul so continuing on um and as somebody um who has struggled for years with anxiety disorder and who did not know what that was growing up um, I thought everybody always felt like that. And so when you discuss soul fracture and this fear of like, uh, so what I'm looking for. It being rebuffed. Rebuffed. Yes. Um, there's another verb. Um, Rejection. like rejected. Yes. Oh, this yes. fear of being rejected, preventing you from doing things. And the way you describe it, I was like, Oh my God, that's me. Like my whole childhood. I'm like, yes, that's how I feel. But can you describe which to our listeners what you mean by soul fracture and how that is connected to the physical well-being of person? And I, I and before you before you answer that, I think it's very interesting you describe that because here in you know Western society, I think we kind of realize you know fear and this stress we put on mm-hmm. ourselves does have a physical impact on our health and our immune system. But yes, could you please describe it? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, this is good because, you know, in the last question, I, I mentioned that the nefs is this entity that is mutable, it's multiple, um, it's impacted internally, externally. Um, and so part of like the, um, the, the, the psychology of the, the soul is that there are external senses, internal senses, um, that are impacted. Uh, and so when we think about what can impact um, your, your, you know, you can, we can say soul, psyche, desire, right? So I, I discuss how nefs itself, the term, it can mean soul, it can mean self, it can mean your desiring state. So when my interlocutors say nefsi, um, apple pie, like <laughs> I, I desire apple pie. So that comes from your soul. 
So the way that you come to understand what is possible to desire, what is possible in interaction comes back to uh, actually affect how you feel psychically, how you feel physically. And the interesting thing with soul fracture is uh, in the way that uh, both Omar and Nofal um, talk about it. So Nofal, uh, so in the article, Nofal talks about, uh, he uh, compares it to like a possible state of falling into, say, like madness, or you can say like into depression or something like that. And he says that uh, the thing, um, the moment where uh, like the sun sets and you forget yourself and you stop eating and you have to return to yourself. So he connects a psychic state of being kind of overcome or overwhelmed by yourself to then actual like your capacity to take care of yourself, your capacity to be in relationship with others. Um, your capacity to um, uh, engage with others. So the interesting thing about Kesed and Nefs is that it's not good or bad. <laughs> That's the interesting thing. And so when I um, looked into the archive, I found it in Imam al-Ghazali's treatise on disciplining the soul. And so Kesed and Nefs was, uh, it's translated, um, which actually means break of the soul that could lead to the fracture of the soul. So the the greatness of the soul could come about by practices of kind of limiting your um, not necessarily like limiting your desire so that you're thinking you're kind of cultivating humility in relation to others, in relation to just like being in the world and, and in, in exchanges. Um, but at the same time, he says, like, you can cultivate it to have these good attributes. But at the same time, if you um, have too much of Kesed, if your nefs is broken to the kind of the extreme opposite, it could lead to um, debasement. Um, it could lead to feeling like being held back and it could lead to the erosion of your courage. So something that could actually lead you to have courage over um, your kind of wants and needs over others could also then lead you to not be able to, to have the capacity to engage others, engage yourself. Uh, so the, it's really um, interesting. And the and the main like point with Almud is that his anxiety, like his anxiety that his soul might be fractured is what actually keeps him safe from soul fracture. And I think it's when he says this to me that I became much more interested in um, this question of Kesed Nefs because colloquially when I'm in the hospital and people would say, oh, you must come to our, of course, and this happens all the time, like that you must come to our house. Um, we want to invite you for um, lunch. Like, it's like, don't rebuff me. Don't reject me. And I used to just be like, oh, this is, like, you know, this is a euphemism, like, this is what people say. But the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, this is literally saying that unless there's a negotiation about whether I can or cannot do it, if I just rebuff, like, right away, then it's almost like an end of a transaction and future transactions. So it limits their desire or their capacity to ask me again, or our capacity to be in relationality with one another. And you can think of this then, like, 
in terms of your ability to access institutions or like whether you think you are the kind of person that can enter into exchange with others, into community with others. Uh, so it's really interesting um, in terms of uh, how cultivating your soul can um a certain kind of cultivation of your soul and practices of your soul can lead to one extreme of attaining courage and humility. But at the other end, if it's um, if the restrictions on your desire, your restrictions on your capacity to articulate your desire or even to be able to speak it to another, then can actually foreclose um, your poss possibility to imagine being in community with others. Uh, in the article, you discuss how he, you know, he had the courage, you know, to, to, was it cross the border and put himself in danger, but then he was, you know, had that fear to speak to the doctor. And I was just thinking, he's like, yeah, because I, I was in the military. I'm like, yeah, I can deploy to Afghanistan. I'm fine. Cause I'm just, I'm just doing my job, but I got to make a phone call. And I'm like, oh God, unless you have to call the bank for me. Like, <laughs> I like, I can't talk yeah. to people. It's not... No, that's interesting because in one, in the, in the former of actually being deployed and going somewhere and like, um, right. You're being deployed for a duty and there's like a particular task for you. There's something about your imagination that is not, there, there's something that's not, that's not linked about the imagination and uncertainty in the way that the phone call is so intimate and the phone call, you know, has this kind of, um, uh, future enactment of whether like the the other will hear or respond or be able to make sense um of your request i understand because i'm the kind of person <laughs> who will write an email like 20 million times even though i'm a writer because i'm like will i be understood where will it translate will my intentions be translated into this like very intimate space versus this like other space of like you know, a fear of like, um, uh, of like a landscape versus something that is, has like psychic weight because it is about ourselves, right? It's like about your image of yourself and whether that will be kind of, um, given back to you. So the, the different types of fear and, and how in a lot of ways, I don't think I've ever really thought of fear in anything but a singular state of mind mm. um and, and like ashley was talking about uh and in your article he goes into this dangerous situation where there's you know physical harm that's act he's actually risking and while i was never you know i was never a soldier i never i've been in you know a, a couple of you know uh, fights here and there as as you do but nothing that was extremely dangerous the only true dangerous situations that I've been in where I almost stepped on a rattlesnake once it was about four inches away and it told me to move um and I was in a car accident just last year the the first you know the the fear was super intense and it was instinctive to the point where you just you know I, I couldn't help but move away from the the situation and all of that and the heart my heart was racing afterward the the latter the car accident it was it definitely was different now looking looking back at the situations when it happened it was so you know the car accident happened it was so quick boom mm -hmm. and then it's over 
and the the fear of the of the situation didn't have time to sink in until after it's like well what's happening who is at fault mm. what's going on here what's you know are we, am i gonna have to talk to the police am i gonna have to talk to all these other questions and then like um ashley was talking about i knew i was gonna have to get on the phone with the insurance company and the the creeping fear of those social interactions versus the the fear of being in that dangerous situation i don't have words to describe the delineation but the fact is there is something different about it and, and i think uh he describes it really well here and I, it's very interesting to hear that oh absolutely um so this is where uh this is interesting because the first time um I met Ahmad. I never thought I would write this. <laughs> I never mm-hmm. thought I would actually write about the story because I, it, it was just so complex to me and it took me, it took me a very long time to be able to kind of sit and, and think with Ahmad and write it because it was so complex. It was so like philosophically and psychologically complex. Mm-hmm. Even though when I, when I, this is interesting. When I wrote the piece, people were like, what theories is he reading? And I'm like, who says people have to read, you know, philosophy or theory to be able to theorize on um, people also like have oral traditions and people mm-hmm. also learn through experiences. So the interesting thing is, um, and I agree, I never thought of fear outside of just fear, right? So, and it enabled me to think about how, um, like, it's actually very sophisticated the way Amar and Nofal, his cousin, differentiate fear from fright. And then anxiety, right? So for him, fear, there's fear of people, and then there's fear of God. And so the, um, the fear of like people and things, these are like, um, uh, like you have a fear of, um, uh, interacting with people that has to do with, are we like, there's a, a question of, are we in community with one another? Uh, are we acknowledging, um, uh, the way that, um, God has, um, and, and these are Muslims, right? And so they understand there's a way that God dispenses like justice and truth. Um, are we, on, it's almost like, are we on the same page that we understand there's a certain type of justice and truth, um, that enables us to be in community, to hear one another's desire and to negotiate that space of desire and demand. And for him, there's a loss of this kind of fear of God that would enable us to negotiate, say, care, understanding, um, hospitality, generosity. And um, that's being kind of displaced for fear of the, the hospital policy, state um, policy. So he's very sophisticated and kind of delineating between the two. And when he calls like it's Abe not to innate, like it's Abe not to create the space for me to be able to ask for care. Right. Mm -hmm. And then fright, on the other hand, is something that, say, for example, when we talked about um, calling someone or emailing someone, fright Mm -hmm. is the fear of something uncertain. You can't anticipate what the object is Uh, because like, say, fear of the snake, that's a direct object. Like I fear this thing that I see that I could locate. But the fright is something about being really overwhelmed by the by the, the the imagination because you really can't imagine what could happen and you can't anticipate 
what could happen so that you can be ready um, for what um, happens. So like if I cannot, um, and this is why I, I say it's the, it, like the way that he was talking about it reminded me of um, Freud's book on group psychology, where Freud uh, basically uh, described the like fear as um, uh, being scared of like a definitive object, fright being something that you're afraid of, something uncertain. And so you're just it, it creates a like a lot of um, uh, discouragement of knowing how to place yourself in that situation and then panic fear. And so panic fear is when it's like he thinks that a crowd panics not because like they know something is happening, but you anticipate that the, what she calls um, uh, like libidinal, like affinity, like my uh, ability to anticipate that we are on the same page and we're not going to like topple one another in this crowd that gets kind of lost. And mm-hmm. that's sort of what um, Omar says about the loss of the fear of God. Cause the loss of fear of God is, understanding that we're here we're sharing this space and we're understanding that like we are here for one another's like health and well-being whereas as as soon as i panic because i don't know whether you and i are on the same page or our like communal goals are very similar and we're going to give each other the space to say escape or to find a way out um so it's really interesting it gets you to think a lot about like not just your capacity so your capacity to engage um uncertainty has so much to deal with has so much to do with others around you um whether it's intergenerationally whether it's communally um whether in relation to one another so it kind of decenters this idea that we have about the mastery of the self and the mastery of your psyche um, and it's not something that is like, you know, sometimes a lot of like certain strains of psychology wants you to think that, oh, anxiety, depression, um, it's all about your mastery over your psyche. But it takes out the relationality of like a field and a landscape in your relation to others um, and the kind of affinity that requires for you to embark on a journey with others. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um that you mentioned your uh, your surroundings in, in that regard, just because, um, and you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I I would I would say that um, your surroundings and the people that you surround yourself with have a huge impact on uh, how you feel and think and everything else like that. Um, but something else that you mentioned um, about the fear of God reminded me of the that social need that you know pretty much all hominins are even even down you know even as far as saying primates need that social connection of being on the same page you'll see um, gestures of reassurance through so many different um mm-hmm. you know peoples and and even you know like i said uh primates and other species uh, those gestures of reinsurance give you a real baseline. It's like if you don't have that, you have no footing, you have no standing. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I. It's 
you're in free fall. Right. So I, I totally understand that panic at point. Um, yeah, just, just a comment there. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <clears throat> oh, I should have taken allergy medicine. Uh, you pretty much answered my next question. But um, to add on to that, do you feel that this fear of rejection prevented or possibly slowed down his recovery? Um. Wow. So Amara's recovery is very... It's very interesting and complicated um, because I tried so hard not to kind of reduce it to psychologizing what was happening mm -hmm. or to make it into something like psychosomatic, like a manifestation of um, uh, like like a psychic wound or something like that, like a physical manifestation of that. I think, yeah. So the fear of rejection for me, it's more of like a larger metaphor for kind of the war affliction, um, the historical um, end of hospitality between the two countries. And, and it is it is somewhat of a metaphor of that, but it's also like a form of resistance on his part. Uh, not necessarily to say that he's resisting physical recovery, but he's trying to say something about the cure as being, uh, unavailable within this hospital. So, cause even just, even the, the question of the cure, is it, does it mean that his jaundice is gone? Um, does it mean that he will now have status? Um, he will be able to travel back and forth and see his family. Like what is, what is the cure, right? I, the, the, for me, the, the question of understanding illness is not just like simply um, like a physical recovery or return of the body to like a previous mm -hmm. state, but there's something much larger at stake. And for me, it's Afia, like it's physical, spiritual and uh, um, physical, spiritual and psychological well-being. And so Almar is speaking something like much more, um, uh, it, it, much more at stake than just simply talking about um, recovering phys physically within the hospital. And there's also so much of it that's also kind of resisting giving himself over as this like victim who can be infantilized and um seen as some kind of um uh like uh carnage of the war because he himself is doing the steps he's taking the steps necessary to protect his psyche um he's taking the steps necessary um uh, not to give himself kind of completely over uh, and this was very challenging for me because a lot of times when we're writing in anthropology, uh, people want the activist, they want the, the, the hero, they want this kind of liberatory anthropologist who kind of comes saves people from their place. And for me, it was much more engaging, um, Almar and kind of the, 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 the history that he was trying to, to evoke and the necessary, uh, sort of the, the, the necessary alleviation of that. That is not just simply about 
his jaundice, but his capacity to move um, across states, the impact of geopolitics on his psyche, on his capacity to desire, because what's at stake here is his capacity to desire, right? It's much more, for him, it's much more important than, say, the the alleviation of the jaundice, where for him, um, he had been cured of it by the mushfet. And the important thing about the mushfet in Yemen is that the mushfet receives you. He's not going to reject you. He's going to create like a refuge for you to create the space for you to be able to recover. And I think the 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 capacity to desire the space to to recover uh, is really important for Omar here. And he's and he's speaking something much more to like the the like the field of his soul rather than um, mm-hmm. the the capacity for to kind of return his body to like you know, certain kind of bodily functions. The reason I ask is uh, I felt like it was a combination of both, you know, the psyche, but also uh, that that lack of connection and communication between him and the doctor. And I think you mentioned an article that, uh, was it, is it his cousin or whoever he was with, also didn't want to speak up about some issues he had and I wonder, I was like, well, if you had that connection with the doctor, would you then speak up about all these other symptoms, which can then help you uh, maybe get additional medical care? Um, it just seemed like a very like mix of things that could slow down his recovery. No, absolutely. And I think the important thing here is... Um... The, the 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 part about spiritual well-being because the hospital does a good job of like letting imams come and read Quran um they acknowledge the they have like all these posters about um the old physicians who are also um like scholar jurisprudence scholars and they have an understanding of your um of your soul but that spirituality also has material conditions mm-hmm. and i think that's what it is so the fact that you can be in um connected to others who also kind of fear God and understand the 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 kind of sharedness of resources with community and um understanding that communal well like that individual well being and communal well being are tied together. It, it's not so much that um because it's not so much that do I give you space to speak because I mean P- Professor Hakim was one of the most like humble, like helpful um, physicians within the hospital. And some immigrants felt heard by him. But Omar was like insistent on this limitation, right? Um, Within the hospital that was just like beyond being heard, but that something has to transform, like some other symptom has to be attended to. And even though I did feel that, you know, Professor Hakim like articulates his limits to Ahmad by saying like I can do within whether with what's within my capacity and I did find that like you know physicians you know they're like they resist the irrigation of power that patients want to give them because they're like you are the interface of this institution and this institution is the interface of the state right and so like something has to give like you're in a position of power but the physicians themselves they're still like an actor, you know, there's still people with their own desires, their, their own capacity, their own limitations to their capacity. So 
it's it's not so much I, I think I was trying to complicate the relationship a little bit more by saying, you know, Professor Hakim also understands that he can't meet Omar's desire. And he himself um, is limited by like his by his capacity as well. And so it's not so much that he can heal him, but that something else has to transform. Like the, the, the fact that there is this idea that, oh, this is a Muslim community or this is a Muslim hospital. And yet the material conditions are not meeting the ideals that it proposes. It sounds okay uh i'm gonna tell me if it doesn't sound right but it sounds like his spiritual condition that he was um describing could be similar you could liken it to being in a climate that you're not used to mm-hmm. like if you're if you're going in you know you're, you're from an area like sacramento it gets very very warm out here and then suddenly you are transported to somewhere up in Alaska, even in the midsummer being cold up there, it would be difficult for your body to function the same way on the same, even with the same level of care. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, Omar is from Tehama and I think, I forgot the approximate like mileage. I think it's only 60 miles from the hospital where he's from. I mean, this is how crazy this story is. Like it's not, like we're talking about someone who went from like Russia to, you know, um, I don't know, like England or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tehama is in particularly has, even though the rest of Yemen is uh, green and there's parts of Yemen that are very tropical and the weather in Yemen is like very diverse in different regions because of its mountainous um, landscape. Tehama itself used to be part of the Hejaz, which is kind of the the route that went all the way from Yemen all the way up to Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is sort of kind of similarities. And it used to be a part of um, like you can call it like Arabia prior to like, you know, World War One um, kind of slicing of um, the Middle East. So there is that. But you're right in terms of. When we say climate, right, we can think about access to resources because mm-hmm. if you are um, in a place where, you know, the heat is rising, um, access to water is really important, but you're there alone and you don't have an apartment with AC. I mean, there's certain kind of affordances that you that re- it requires for you to be in that place. And there's a certain kind of um, an availability of communal um, mutual aid. Uh, so of course, all of these things matter to be in a particular place. Um, there has to be the, the, this way that you navigate your landscape. And maybe, he, you know, of course, he probably had that in Tehama. Uh, but of course, like, unless he has others, and I think he only had his cousin and a few people uh, of course, that would limit your capacity to take care of yourself, your capacity to imagine what is possible um, and to deal with um, like shifting environmental um, causes. So do you think his limited access to his um, community or his, his family might have been affecting the way he was perceiving that environment, the medical environment? Absolutely. I mean... Yeah. I think because he attributes to the return of the jaundice to the car accident. So like there was a, there was these 
teenagers, you know, they're driving around and I mean, I mean, like, and, you know, they almost run him over and that kind of fright because they were, you know, telling me fright can lead to jaundice, you know, it could lead to like this, this the physical manifestation of um, symptoms and jaundice. Mm-hmm. Um, and absolutely like, and not being able, like first thinking that you're the kind of individual um, that is, uh, seen as replaceable, um, that is not, um, understood as one of the, the, the community that has a lot of impact into your own image. And that's why I said like this image of the Yemeni, um, that is like abject or immigrant or beggar that is no longer seen as, you know, this individual that kind of travels back and forth, um, uh, has a huge impact in your capacity to build community. If you think people like you are not accepted or well received, um, or will be heard, like if you're, it's not just so much that I demand <laughs> that I'm in community with you and you're going to listen to me, but even the possibility to enter into exchange because we understand ourselves as being in community with one another. It, absolutely. Like that has your like, ent- your psychic anticipation. Um, of what is possible with others has complete impact on your like psyche, your physical well-being, um, and your courage to approach and um, and exchange with others. Mm-hmm. You mentioned how, uh, one of my questions was, uh, you know, you know, were there others? like Omar, who felt they could not open up. But then you made a comment earlier um, that it sounds like maybe he was a bit of the exception, maybe. Not, so how- not the only exception. Okay. <laughs> not the only exception. So would you say it was common then to have that fear of opening up and uh, making that connection with the doctor? Um. So it's interesting. So I have within the manuscript that I'm currently working on um, that I use different um, uh, kind of uh, case studies or certain uh, relationships that I cultivate over time with different patients. Uh, it wasn't, it, it, the interesting thing is the, this question of medicine and recovering within the hospital was on the one hand, right? There's like this like historical wound that is very particular to um, uh, like the hospital and other migrants within the region, which all these countries are, um, uh, are like impact the displacement of, um, a lot of the individuals and how they end up in Jeddah. Um, there's, there's that. Uh, there were others who, uh, had criticisms of, uh, how the physicians themselves treat them as, say, guinea pigs or, they're not treating them as um, uh, like neighbors. It's really interesting. Like they're not treating them as neighbors or the cultivation of their soul. Uh, it is not um, up to like their what they believe should be the kind of character and virtues that a doctor should cultivate. And so then um, there's this kind of detachment uh, that the doctors might have or like 
the there's a relationship of their like they would accuse them of their relationship of expertise being linked to their cultivation of their soul and whether they can trust them, whether they're virtuous, whether they're God fearing. So it's really interesting, like different patients um, are dealing with different epistemological questions. Um, and that just means that, uh, like, for example, one patient was refusing to get surgery for her catheter because she was saying she didn't like the way that she was talked to by some of the medical students and residents, and she demanded that the doctors cure her. And so there was then this question of who is the doctor, what makes a good doctor, and um, how is it that the doctor becomes this person that is supposed to uh, provide certainty um, in this particular situation, and how does this power get irrigated, and what is it about the fantasy of biomedical um, sciences that you know, sell us this um, dream of full recovery. So all of these things are at stake in the hospital and they're both localized concerns, but also global like manifestations, you know, as you know, for example, and I touch upon this in one of my chapters, the interesting thing about the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and maybe this is a little contentious, but there were, I read articles where, individuals who had received COVID and then their families um, and then I think they hadn't received the vaccine and they died in the hospitals, their families blamed the doctor, which I actually talk a lot about um, uh, in my book in, um, uh, in Jordan, Saudi Arabia and Yemen, there's this like irrigation of power to the doctor. And then, and then I found it here during the pandemic. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, what is it about this power of the this power that we give to the doctor that we don't think about um, that gets displaced from like, say the state or public health um, or actual other actors that might be um, involved um, in it. And so uh, it's, it's interesting. Like I'm very much interested in this question of how physicians come to inhabit that space uh, in relation to um, uh, some of the patients and then there were other patients who talked about their symptoms as intergenerationally, that it's like something beyond what the doctor um, can do, that this is like a history of their soul, a history of larger manifestations of generational trauma and so forth. So it's re it was really interesting for me to kind of think about the, the practice of medicine and not necessarily create these um, dichotomies between like biomedical medicine and traditional medicine, but to look at relationalities, um, like larger relationalities that have to deal with well-being itself and what are the kind of factors and how can these actually transform the way that we think about medicine and medical practice that's not just simply like, oh, we have the body, we deal with the physical manifestations of the symptoms, and then all these other things get kind of trunk, like kind of separated into different things. And then sure, like we can, you know, like we can do self-care, <laughs> but medicine is, is, that, is here, rather than trying to think about um, the kind of larger symptoms that are being spoken about in the hospital, because these are the very few spaces that we have now that speak to these things.
I mean, you left, you ended the article with Omar still in the hospital. I mean, what what happened? <laughs> like, uh, what happened after I, that? I get this question a lot. <laughs> I get this question a lot. Everyone's like, what happened to Omar? Um, and one of the, as, again, one of the reasons I felt like I couldn't write this is because I didn't have an ending. Like I, I, I didn't know what happened. So I followed. Uh, so the, the way that I would, um, I tried to, uh, follow the IRB procedures, um, as much as possible because I both had IRB, um, which is the internal review board, um, procedures of how to be with, um, vulnerable populations. Because when you're with patients, of course, they're recovering. There's a lot going on. They might feel vulnerable. They might feel like they need to speak to you. And so I tried to follow them as much as possible. And so I would meet and interact with patients in rounds. I would only return afterward um, when I was alone, not with the doctor, so they didn't feel like kind of the power of the institution forcing them to participate in my research. And so, um, and when I met Omar, I was on the rotation for infectious disease. And so he needed like this um, subspecialty, but he was on another, he was being provided care by another team that I don't have access to and of course um there's um all these rules and regulations about looking up patients and so i think we rounded a couple of times it was like three times over three weeks and um and i think i had returned i I had tried to find him (laughs) after three weeks and i could not and it was very hard to figure out like I mean, I, I couldn't look him up. Of course, I couldn't, like, you know, um, because of patient-doctor confidentiality, couldn't look up if he was moved. So I actually have no idea if he was moved or if he discharged himself, um, if he left. And there was a lot of times I was like, how can I write this? And I don't know what actually happened. Um, but I think part of the certainty or part of wanting that ending is part of the problem. <laughs> Yeah. Because, yeah. It's, you know, Almar is not in the hospital to give me a story or to, like, give me some kind of, like, um, culminating, like... Closure. Closure. I, I There's no closure with Almar. And yeah. I think his cousin had reached out to me because I would give them my number. I didn't take their numbers. Um, just, to ask, just to ask me how I'm doing. Um, because a lot of patients do that. They would just... You know, they would ask me, am I still in Saudi Arabia? And I think a month after that, it was like two months after we initially met, I, um, I, I had, cause I had to leave to renew my visa every six months. And so when I returned, I, I still looked and I couldn't find, um, Ahmad, but most, and I don't want to make any kind of assumptions about what happened or if he left or if he was cured. Um, I just hope because I, um, I did hope that through our conversations that like certain spaces would open up both for me and for the patients about like kind of the possibilities, um, that were available to them. But again, that's, you know, kind of imposing this kind of power that the outsider has, <laughs> uh, on others, because I also think, that you know they're taking care of themselves as well like they're very much equipped um with what they need to be able to understand whether they can anticipate 
uh, being received or not. But I know that's not the answer you wanted, <laughs> but everyone at like, even when my students were at this piece last semester, they were just like, where'd he go? What happened? And so I had to kind of give them this like anthropological, methodological, like, you know, um, <laughs> like, you know, sometimes these things happen, like yeah. someone's there. And then sometimes after a while, you don't get to kind of see what happened. But the, the, the interesting thing, this chapter or the, the article is from the last chapter um, of the manuscript that I'm currently writing. And it's kind of the launch pad for the, the the work that I want to do now on mental health um, and the impacts of geopolitics on the psyche in Yemen. So Almud is like, you know, kind of giving life to a certain set of research questions um, uh, that I'm hoping to pursue. But I think it's so interesting that he also just kind of resists giving the readers and me <laughs> something to kind of hold on to because yes, this, this is, this happens in the field, you know, people's lives, um, continue and things are not, you can't, you know, there's not a bow tie, um, at the very mm-hmm. end to make us all feel better about what we're doing or what, like what we're reading. I think in a way that speaks to how much most people in general care about other people, uh, you hear a story about somebody having a hard time. You want to know, did it get yeah. better? I mean, even if it didn't get better, at least you know. You mm-hmm. you do, it. it uh, I don't want to say it severs the connection, but it. Um, well, it's called closure for a reason, right? You uh, you have that sense of. Maybe it's similar to having that baseline. Once you have a, a baseline of connection between you and another person, even if it's just a story, not having that ex- that the rest of that information is uh, it's uncomfortable. And Absolutely, we're we're wired to seek that information. It's uh, it's it's our homeostasis, right? No, absolutely, we do not do well with uncertainty. And it's so interesting, like this question of dealing with uncertainty is like throughout my this like the, this first manuscript that I'm writing and how we try so much to fill in that gap of uncertainty because it makes us uncomfortable. Like we want to have like like this constant state of our health or this constant state of our soul. Um, but we don't understand it's like this thing that you're ongoing, you know, you're cultivating and, you know, just because someone has momentary relief does not mean that that's constant. Like things return, things are, you know, they might, they might be less severe in the next case, but they return in a certain instantiation. Um, And I think that's really important. And especially when we think about like health and when we think about um, uh, like a possibility to relate um, to your health in a way that is both, um manageable i mean we have such ideals that we think we need to achieve about um about care and the care that we provide others and we don't actually think about it that it's like incremental mm-hmm. um and it's something that you have to do that it's like it's ongoing work yeah well-being is not a thing that you have it's a process yeah. absolutely <laughs> So what what's next? What is your current research or the research you'll be doing next? 
Okay. Um, so my current manuscript um, uh, is about the, 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 free, the three field sites um, that I um, uh, conducted field work with, with medical doctors. And um, part of the, like, the larger research is thinking about um, doctors, medical ethical practices, the education um, of medicine, thinking about doctor-patient relationality, um, uh, what causes um, steps to um, healing, what causes resistance to treatment from doctors. Um, but additionally, a lot of this is also thinking about um, the place of um, medicine itself within um, like a longer history, um, uh, especially uh, within the Islamic civilization, um, because it has a longer history beyond um, like the evidence-based biomedical um, uh, practices that we have. So a lot of it is trying to kind of almost decolonize the Western canon because it's trying to think about um, uh, ethical practices that come from um, medieval medicine, Arabic medicine, um, and trying to also think about how to uh, think of the history of science that takes into um, consideration um, medicine within um, Islam, which kind of gets left left out of the the, the discourse, uh, because we just have like Muslims, like Islamic philosophy and medicine is seen as uh, basically um, uh, transmitting Greek medicine, and then nothing happens. We had no contributions to the history of science and medicine, and then. Uh, you have like Western medicine. So a lot of the questions that I ask about not only like medical expertise comes from how like certain inflections from the tradition return, um, how ideas of the demands for Afia within the hospital um, have the inflections of um, the like um, the, the concept of the soul uh, and also they have inflections of like um, a lot of those practices that find their way um, in order to attend to the like, shifting material conditions that have made medicine in the way that it is. And so there's a, a reform of epistemology or a reform of an understanding of the doctor as an instrument um, or tool of uh, divine kind of um, cure. Uh, and so in each chapter, I talk about different scenes of reform and the kind of work that is happening with both physicians and patients that is not just supposed to kind of insert tradition, but transform medical practice itself. And so those understandings and attending to Afia, um, uh, and I, as I mentioned, the last chapter uh, with Omar is kind of the launch pad for my next project, uh, which is on um, the impact of geopolitics on the psyche. And so uh, it's really thinking about the, the, not only the, the impact of the humanitarian crisis on mental health um, in Yemen, but how youth um, post-Arab Spring are responding with creating films, um, music, art that attend to kind of the destruction that has happened, the kind of the, the destruction to heritage, to, let, to, 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 to sites, and the kind of the loss narratives um, that uh, keep Yemen out of the discourses both globally and within the, the Middle East. Um, and these, and this for me, this project for me is really important because 
all the focus now on Yemen is about the kind of the humanitarian crisis, the violence, the implosion, the state, the, the failure state, rather thinking about um, the different ways that people are responding or the resilience and the moments of refuge um, that the youth are taking and trying to kind of recreate those narratives and um, reconstruct um, the image of the Yemeni as not just this migrant beggar, um, this victim, um, but uh, that um, there's a lot of like um, history and contributions to um, both to, to poetry, to the Islamic tradition, and that in a sense is getting kind of revived in order to attend to um, the mental health crisis, um, which uh, is really um, interesting. And it's uh, a passion of mine now to work with Yemeni youth um, and mentor um, some of my interlocutors in the future. Uh, so thank you again for being on the show. To our listeners, you can find us on our website, anthropotamus.com. You can find us on Audible, iTunes, CastBox, Apple Podcasts. Uh, you could also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Anthropotamus. Until next time, bye. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.